Hey, this is Ian from Dubai. And if you want to be a better communicator, then you should be listening to the Art of Communication podcast with my good friend, Greg Rice. Welcome to the Art of Communication, where entrepreneurs learn to grow their business more effectively through mastering their ability to connect to others. Whether you're looking to increase revenue, widen your network, or just getting others to buy into your vision, we'll help you dramatically transform your business and life by communicating more effectively, improving your leadership skills, and reinvesting time back into your family. You're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and your life. So let's start the conversation with your host, Greg Rice. Hey guys, today I'm talking with Ian Bugs. Ian is the head of finance for the Gulf region for Amgen. He's also a board member for the University of Pittsburgh Business Alumni Association, and he has an MBA from Carnegie Mellon and a master's in global political economy from the University of Pittsburgh. We have a pretty in-depth conversation around what it's like to work in other cultures, as he has plenty of experience in that department. We talk about how communication norms can be quite different from one culture to another. The importance of taking the time to build relationships in international contexts, which is something that we often take for granted here in the U.S. because we're always in a hurry. How he keeps such a strong network from the other side of the globe, and he's a master networker, and a tremendous question that he asked to get deeper than just small talk. So when he's talking to somebody new, he asks a specific question that, that helps him get deeper, and I love it. I'm going to definitely steal it from him, so check that out. But overall, it was a fascinating conversation with a ton of great lessons on how we can communicate more effectively with people from other cultures. Ian, thanks for coming on the Art of Communication podcast today. Really excited to have you on. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for, for taking the time and including me in the podcast. For sure. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait for a discussion, especially around topics related to your international travel and working internationally. Um, I've actually been talking to a lot of folks lately around things like uh, unconscious biases and things like that. And what I've been saying is traveling is one of the best ways to mitigate against that. Because whenever I've traveled, I've always been amazed at how how similar we all are, no matter where we're, we are around the world. You know, we have different customs, traditions, all that. But at the end of the day, we're all kind of good people just trying to raise our families and make the world a little bit better, right? Regardless of where you're from. So I'm excited sure. to kind of get into some of that. But let's just start by kind of sharing a little, back, a little bit of background in your story and kind of how you ended up working overseas. Sure. So for me, I've, I've always wanted to live and, and work outside of the U.S. For me, it's uh, my mother was, uh, you know, had a very international career. She used to work for the IMF and the World Bank and would probably travel internationally two to three times a year, right? So um, I would get the postcards and the t-shirts of all these cool places she was going around the world. And I think that built into some of my own wanderlust. Um, you know, I think my, one of the kind of pivotal turning points for me was going, uh, and uh, doing my study abroad, my senior year of college where I went on semester at sea. So for those that aren't familiar, it's, it's, uh, basically what they call a voyage of discovery where you're sailing around the world for an entire college semester, visiting 10 different ports of call. Uh, you get about, you know, anywhere from four to five days in each port. And it, it really, gets you outside of your comfort zone, right? Because you have to go to 10 different ports. You've got to understand to whatever degree you can, the language, the culture, the the norms to be able to kind of navigate and get as much out of that experience in a, in a five day period as you can. And then after that, I, I pursued, um, after graduating from undergrad with my business degree, I went on and pursued a master's in international affairs. So for me, it's something that was always a, a focus of, of just trying to learn more about that that world outside my window right and from there it was just a, an opportunity as i got a, got back into the corporate world and was building my career that in order to truly develop i knew that i needed to leave the us right and and i knew that there weren't many people who were willing to do that and, and i knew that it would be able to to springboard my career in, in ways you know that i couldn't imagine and, and certainly getting some mentors um, along the way to be able to, to guide me through that process and, and, and how to navigate it. And, and so as I went through and, and I went back to school again uh, and, and got my MBA and, and when I came on full time with um, you know, my, my company post my MBA, I was there able to you know, kind of reinvigorate the discussion as I came out of this rotational program I was a part of. 
I just decided to kick the tires and look on the internal job boards and see what jobs were out there worldwide. And I, I saw a job posting for Dubai. I said, okay, let me toss in my application. And, you know, to my and at my at the time girlfriend, who's now my wife's surprise, um, <laughs> I, I was hired. <laughs> you know, I was given given the, the offer. And I think that was in June of, of 2013. And by the middle of late July, you know, I, I was on a one-way ticket to, to Dubai. And I, I think it's just setting the intention in your own mind, finding the right mentors to help you get there, and then being prepared to, to actually take advantage of that opportunity once it comes and, and being ready to go. And I think that was the impetus that they got me to Dubai. And, and now I've been here this summer, at least seven years, which is hard to believe. Yeah. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Yes. So tell me about kind of, you just landed, right? Um, how much of a challenge, a culture shock, how hard was it to adapt? And, and, and so it's, it's interesting because, you know, you are an accumulation and amalgamation of your life experiences, right? So for me, it wasn't my first time in the Middle East. And when I was in college, one of my roommates that I, I had lived with for, for about five years was from Kuwait. So I had grown up, I had come through, you know, some of my, my adult years living with someone who's from the region, right? Mm -hmm. In 2008, I made my first, you know, I, I went on vacation to go and visit him in Kuwait. Now people are like, why would you go to vacation in Kuwait? But I promised him that I'd come and visit, you know, it's something that, you know, he's one of my, my closest friends and I wanted to see where and how he lived. Right. So we spent some time in Kuwait and then we also spent about a week in, in Egypt, in Cairo, um, and Sharm el-Sheikh, which was amazing. There, I quickly learned that there was uh, an Egyptian price, an Arab price, and an American price. And go figure, the American price was probably the most expensive. So I let him do all the talking when I wanted to buy something. And then in 2010, when I was doing my MBA, I and some uh, classmates of mine planned a trek to the Middle East. Carnegie Mellon is, is where I went for my MBA, and, and they have a sister campus in Doha, Qatar. So we did Dubai and Doha, uh, you know, over the course of 10 days, you know, sitting in on, on lectures. We visited with companies. We got to kind of experience the culture. And I thought that was a one-time thing, right? Like you get to kind of see Dubai and all of its glitz and glamour, and, and that would be it. Um, little did I know that three years later, I would actually be moving there. So I think by the time I landed, it wasn't so foreign to me, but there are things you just have to get used to once you actually live there as opposed to being a tourist, right? You understand the kind of division of labor and who, you know, stereotypically does what jobs. There's a, a you know, in the UAE, 80 to 90% of the population are not Emirati citizens. So you have a very large Indian population, Sri Lankan population, Filipino population that have really over the last 40 to 50 years built this country and, and have been responsible for, for what it is today. So you, you also have to get used to those different cultural intersections. I mean, and you'll find you know, probably as many Arabs here in this region that speak some form of Hindi as well as Arabic because of the amount of, of people who have come over to this region from India in order to, to work. So, and you also see a very interesting, um, you know, aspect where people who were born, raised, and still live in UAE who are not UAE citizens, right? So at least in America, you have this birthright citizenship. But here in the Gulf, that is not the case. You and as you become an adult, your residency is tied to your employment. So think about if you grew up someplace your entire life and that's all the thing you know is home, but then you lose your job one day. You have to go back to the country that your passport is from. Now you may have visited that place, you may, you know, have family there, right? But that's a place that you don't really know. So imagine, you know, growing up in, in Dubai. You know, when you're 30, 35 years old, you lose your job, you can't find another one, and then you have to go back to India. And you're like, wait a minute, this makes no sense to me, right? So you start to understand all these different kind of cultural nuances and how they interact as you kind of get up to speed, you know. But it, it certainly is just a smattering of multiculturalism. And you, you know, start to understand accents, you start to understand <laughs> yeah. working styles and, and how 
you try to get the best out of people, you know, based upon their approaches to work that may be very different from, from yours. Yeah. So going to that, talk about communication in that setting and, and how it's different there than maybe it is in the U S and there it might be very different sure. depending upon who you're talking to based on all the cultural diversity you just talked about. Very much so. So as, as an American, we're, for the most part, what I, what I've noticed in people's impressions of Americans is that we're all very nice, but we're also very direct. You know, we, we like to get to the point and if we have something to discuss, let's discuss it. But here in this part of the world is very much about relationships and, and, and who, you know, and, and how you're able to build a rapport with someone. And, you know, even non-business really, I'll give you an example of, of getting an apartment. When I got my first apartment, I, I wanted a two-bedroom apartment because I said, if I have guests, you know, particularly like my parents, if they come to visit, I'm not going to go and sleep on the couch while they're, you know, sleeping in, in the bedroom or vice versa. If I have other guests to come, I don't want them to sleep on the couch, right? So the property manager, you know, was very inquisitive. He's like, well, why do you as a single person want a two-bedroom meeting? He's like, you're going to be having loud parties and carrying on. But what all it took for him to say yes, in essence, was that I, I sat down and I talked with him for about an hour and a half, just about me, right? And, and dialogue with him. And at the end of that conversation, he said, you seem like a very nice man. Okay. And, and that was it, right? Like I was able to sign the lease and, and carry on. But, you know, you just, you have to sit down and be able to talk to people. It's not just a, a function of this is what I want. I want it now and get it done. People have to be able to know you and trust you. And oftentimes I get people who ask me about moving to Dubai and, and getting jobs in Dubai. And I said, it's not like you just go on a job board and apply somewhere. Like this is a place where you have to come and you have to, to meet, meet with people, build the trust, build the capability. In the U.S., if you lived in you know Maryland and you wanted to get a job in California, you just go online and apply and see if that kind of gets you in the door, right? Here, it just, it doesn't work that way. You can't be in the U.S. and say, oh, I want to move to Dubai. I'll just apply for things. You, you have to get on the ground and you have to, you know, to, to know people, especially if you're looking to kind of change companies or industries or functions. It, it, you really have to be on the ground. So it's, it's very much of a relationship basis. And, you know, from a professional standpoint, as a finance, you know, the, you know kind of commercial finance guy, I'm often interacting with distributors who are partners with the businesses I'm a part of. And so with distributors, they appreciate, you know, me coming, getting on a plane. And it's not like it's that far. I mean, anywhere that I'm in within the Middle East is no more than a three hour flight, but they appreciate you coming and sitting down, having some tea, talking about the business, getting to know one another. And it's very important to build that, that respect and that rapport to be able to see you face to face, right. And, and not deal over emails and phone to be able to to get to that level of of, of interaction and, and that is it's, it's paramount and i think oftentimes people who may come from a western culture uh, may take that um you know may take that for granted and don't understand the, the importance of building those relationships and oftentimes building them over time right it, it's not a, a function of okay i came and met, met with you and everything's good and we can go forward it, it requires the the follow-up and the, the repetition you know, so just like you're, you're building a friendship, right? You, you have to continue to engage over time uh, to make sure that, that you're able to conduct business together and you have an understanding of how that business is going to go. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think it's like part of me loves that, right? Loves the idea of getting to know the folks you're working with and taking time to really know each other and build relationships. And then part of me knows that Americans a lot of times might not be patient enough to do that, right? We're, we're moving to the next thing, which isn't always the best approach for sure. And True. certainly something we would have to temper if we're looking to make a shift like that. I think it's like that in a lot of parts of the world. Sure. I mean, I think one of the keys for me is, is also like, I'm, I'm a native English speaker, right? Of course. But all of these people that I work with, obviously English is not their first language. Mm -hmm. And so you also have to understand how you communicate and what type of tone you're communicating. And there are times you do have to get tough with people in, in, you know, spoken and, and written communication because, you know, the, they don't always necessarily understand the, the niceties, right? And, and if you, sometimes people only respond to, you know, kind of threats as it were, right? You, you can treat people uh, nicely and, and try to kind of 
treat the communication with kid gloves, but sometimes people just respond to being yelled at. And that's also taken me some getting used to, right? Because that's just yeah. not really my nature and my demeanor, but sometimes you just have to be very, very strong with people. And, and that, that's the point where they understand that they have to do something and, and it's a call to action for them. So, you know, changing your, your, your tone and, and, and your, your inflection over time is something that you, you definitely learn. And as you travel, as you mentioned earlier, you know, as you travel, you start to understand what, what is required. Like, you know, when I was going to get tickets to go into, go to the, the Great Wall of China, there's no patience in terms of queuing up, right? Like everybody just kind of goes to the, to the floor. So you just have to jump in. Like, you know, Americans to, you know, are very orderly individuals, right? You get in line and you wait in line and everybody has some, you know, understanding of personal space. And then you get into these other countries where that is not the case. And if you need to get something done, you just need to get in line and, and, you know, kind of hustle your way or jockey your way for position to, to get in front of lines. Right. And it's not necessarily that it's, it's rude. You as an American feel that it is, but that's just the way things are done. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you just, if, if you need to get things done, you need to act in the same way. Right. So it, it's, uh, you know, part of that is assimilating to the, to the cultural norms and understanding that sometimes if, if you need to get things done, you, you really have to be much more aggressive than you're normally used to being. Yeah, yeah. One cultural dynamic that I learned kind of managing folks internationally is yes means different things in different cultures. You know, so I'd say, you know, I give them an assignment and say, hey, do you understand this? Yes. Okay, by next week, yes. And then nothing happens. And I'm like, but you said yes, right? And and it's like they're almost trained to say yes, whether they really understand or not, and and whether they think we can get it done or not. Um, They never have that dialogue around maybe we need to adjust our expectations. Um, and you have to understand that to be able to work with them effectively. It's true. I mean, I, I think one of the uh, funny uh, phrases here in the in the Middle East is inshallah. You know, inshallah means God willing, right? Mm-hmm. So oftentimes when you're working on a business deal or you're uh, having, you know, whether it's negotiations or even just some, some day-to-day, you know, things that you're working on. So you'll get to a point and say, okay, we understand everything's good. You know, we should be able to have, you know, this thing done in a week. And then you hear, inshallah, it will be done. Anytime you hear that, you cringe a little bit because the, you know, like you're just, you're leaving everything up to God. And like, yes, I appreciate that, that Allah <laughs> is very important in this part of the world, but you're just telling me like, yeah, I hope so. As opposed to being like, it, it, it's almost like a, a feigned commitment. Right. And, yeah. and so you know, anytime you hear inshallah, you're like, no, I don't want to hear inshallah. I want to hear, yes, I guarantee you this will be finished, right? So you also have to get used to the inshallah mentality and also understand that, you know, everybody's priority is not yours, you know, and, and vice versa. So it, it you have to be able to kind of navigate and build in some slack, right? So if you need something done in a week, maybe you need to give it three weeks, right? Because then maybe it'll actually be done by the time you want it to get done. So you have to be able to to manage that and get that cultural understanding to know that, Oh yes, if, you know, if, if Greg and I are talking and then he, and I tell him I need this in a week and he's like, you got it. I expect to get it in a week here. That's just not the case. You got to almost build that cushion in. So you understand Very much so. a bit of a different topic, but I'm curious if at least, especially at first, if you found yourself consciously having to manage things like eye contact, body language, physical space, which I know can be very different from culture to culture. Sure. I, I think one of the more uh, kind of awkward things to, to manage is, um, you know, your interaction with, with Arab women um, mm. or Middle Eastern women in particular, right? So you have a variety, you know, the typical kind of business greeting, right, is to shake people's hands. But here you have to be patient with that, particularly with, with Middle Eastern women, Muslim women, because some of them will not, you know, they, they may kind of gently bow to you or nod their head, um, but they're not going to shake your hand because you're a man and they're just not supposed to, based upon their kind of cultural or religious beliefs, do that, right? Mm-hmm. So I found oftentimes I was kind of automatically sticking my hand out there because it was my normal way as an American of greeting people, right? And I had to learn, let me wait and see as I'm introduced to women, let me see what they do, right? 
And so I wait for them to extend their hand. If they don't, that's no offense to me. I just kind of, you know, nod my head or in acknowledgement, but that, that was something that, that took getting used to. And, and sometimes I still make the mistake and it's for as long as I've been here. And I just kind of reflexively, you know, stick out my hand. And, and now we're even in the kind of times of, of COVID and, and nobody's really shaking hands anymore, but I still do it. Right. So I, I think those types of things and those, those nuances are, um, you know, are very important. Body language, I think, is is universal. I, I think you can tell when people aren't engaged or they're slouching or they're upright or they're attentive and they're leading into listening. So I think that doesn't necessarily change, you know, really from, from a cultural perspective. The, the the personal space thing is is certainly very different. You know, I mean, Americans really believe in our personal space and here in, uh, you know, really everywhere I've gone outside the U.S., they don't care. Right. I mean, it is is like I've got somewhere to be or I want to be next in line and I can't leave any gap because somebody will jump in in front of me and all these kinds of things. So that really tends to just go away when when you're in these in these parts of the world, because it's just not a it's not a concept. It's not a thing. It's just a function of everybody's got somewhere to be and they want to get there in a hurry and you're in the way. Right. So, you know, you just kind of have to learn to flow with it. And, and deal with the bumps and the, you know, uh, the, the, the jostling as you're kind of navigating through, through those spaces. So it's just different, you know, but you also understand the, 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 how people also show affection is different. So you will have, I, I was surprised even, you know, as I, I walk through, um, you know, walk through the streets and then you see um, <laughs> men holding hands that's not something that we see in America or it insinuates one specific thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but in this part of the world, that type of, of male interaction and infection doesn't connote the same thing, but it's, it's just much more of a familial thing. You'll find that, you know, men come and they, they kiss each other on the cheeks. They, they touch noses. And, and so there's a, a kind of familiarity and a much more of a kind of, almost like brotherhood embrace that goes on every time people meet and it's it's seen as a very kind of sacred thing and um when i first moved to dubai i was playing one of my coworkers is is algerian and he took me to go and play soccer with all his algerian buddies they played every friday in the park at four o'clock and when you got there you came and you shook everybody's hand right and, you know, you shake you know, their hand and then you touch your hand to your heart. And, it, and it's like if, if you were the, the 20th person to show up, you're shaking 19 hands. Right. And, and that's like everybody greeted everybody. And, and that was something that that I still think is, is, is awesome. Right. Is, is just showing the mutual respect for everybody there. And even me as the, you know, as the American in, in this group they still came up to me and, and, and did the same, which I really appreciated. So, you know, that, that kind of attention to, um, you know, the, the personal kind of interest in, in greeting was, is, is awesome. Yeah. I think there's certainly something beautiful in that. Now you mentioned kind of how it's obviously very culturally different for women. I'm curious to hear about your wife's experience moving over there um, sure. and, and uh, raising a family there as well. Yeah. I mean, so, one of the the key things that, that I, I tell people is, is that one of the initial responses to when anybody says they're going to move to the Middle East is that there's this assumption that they're moving into a war zone and that they're going to be targeted because they're American, you know, and, and don't go because you're going to die, right? Where I live in particular is one of the safest places in the world, right? I, I don't worry about anything living here. And, and, and I mean that genuinely as I, I, I do not, we, we always joke. One of the funny things is, you know, you can leave your wallet and your phone at a coffee shop, go to the bathroom, you can go out and, and, and pay for the meter for your car, go to a store next door and come back. And all your stuff is going to be there when you get back. Right. You do that anywhere in America and your stuff will be gone five seconds after you mm-hmm. walked away. Right. So from a safety perspective, it's amazing. From the multiculturalism that's here, it's amazing. From the ability where just, you know, geographically where Dubai is located is you can fly literally anywhere in the world direct. 
Right. Okay. So it might, it, it might be a 16 hour flight, but you can still get there direct. Like you can go to LA or Auckland, New Zealand direct. Right. <laughs> um, and anywhere in between. Um, so I, I think from that perspective, like you, you, you gain a lot, but you also understand that Dubai is not a forever place, right? Like I, I'm not from here. So this is a place that's been very good to me, you know, for, you know, close to a decade, which is hard to imagine, but you know, to that degree, it's a great place to raise a family, you know, the, the safety, the security, you know, the, the kind of international multicultural experiences that they're getting now, additionally for, for that, it, it's, you know, as an American, I have a different privilege than people from other countries, right? Westerners, you know, are seen as, are regarded, you know, highly, there's this kind of hierarchy, right? Of, of kind of Gulf Arabs, you know, kind of Westerners and, and then, you know, kind of other, right? So there, there is that bit of hierarchy that, that I know that we benefit from. One of the kind of tricky things um, for my wife being Asian is that, you know, a lot of the um, kind of service labor nannies, you know, secretaries, servers or restaurants, people who work in the, the beauty salons are Filipino. Now, my wife is often mistaken for a Filipino. So, you know, even I think was within the first month that she was here, you know, kind of a gaggle of Filipino women approached us one day and they were speaking to her in Tagalog. And, you know, a, I had been in, in Dubai for a year, but B, like some of my very closest friends in high school were Filipino. So I understood what they were, I, at least I understood they were speaking Tagalog to her. And I was like, you know, they're talking to you. And, and so she was like, I, you know, of course I had to say, it's like, I don't speak Tagalog. I'm not Filipino, but you'll, you will see that the people will, based upon first look at her, will assume that she's Filipino and start to interact or treat her in a certain way. Um, or speak to her in a certain way. And then they hear her speak and they're like, oh, you're not. So we probably have to address you in a different manner. But for her, mm-hmm. that's that's frustrating, right? Sure. Um, but it also shows that people will approach you differently based upon your perceived nationality. And so that has a different um, different aspect when, when you're here and in this part of the world. So I think over time, you know, she's found her her niche you know, she's found her group. I mean, you know, there is a, you know, while not massive, but there's a good contingent of Americans that work here, you know, so you're starting you're able to kind of build your own, you know, networks of, of things that are familiar to you and, and kind of give you a sense of community, which she's been able to do. So, but, but certainly in that, within that first year, it was, it was, it was challenging. I mean, and even the, the rights that a, a man has over his wife in this part of the world, because, you know, my, my wife is on my visa, right? Like I'm in essence her sponsor to live here. So, you know, we, it was funny at the beginning, like, you know, I have to write a letter for her in order to be able to work. I have to write a letter of permission for her to be able to get a driver's license, you know, these things. So it, it's, I but that's just that. part of the, exactly right. It, it's just <laughs> part of the, the culture of, of that's what it's expected here. Right. And, and that's part of this, this culture of the man has to give permission, which is just very strange, yeah. you know? So those are the types of things that you just have to, to manage and, and, and deal with, um, of stepping into someone else's culture and, and kind of what some of those, you know, gender norms and assumptions are. But first, have you guys ever struggled to gain traction driving paid traffic while it seems like your competitors are just having a lot more success? If so, then you're going to love what I put together for you. I mean, how about a free analysis of you versus your top three competitors to gain clarity around what is really working and what isn't and where the opportunities are? Does that sound good? Well, I've partnered with some of the best in the paid traffic business to create inflection marketing. I only partner with the best. No one has more experience. These guys have been doing it since 2001, and they've been helping companies win paid traffic across all channels, including Google, Microsoft, and Facebook, Instagram and YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Amazon. And here's the best part. For anyone who sets up a consultation appointment, we'll provide you with a free competitive analysis comparing your pay-per-click advertising versus your competitors, looking at things like messaging, keywords, volume, and cost per click. And there's no obligation for this. It'll give you the foundation that you need to succeed, whether you decide to work with us or not. 
So to learn more about how we can help you take your digital marketing game to the next level and drive a true inflection in your paid traffic, as well as get your complimentary competitive analysis, go to gregjrice.com backslash inflection. That's gregjrice.com backslash inflection to schedule a quick discussion to see if there may be a fit here or not. So with that, let's dive into our interview. Yeah. And so you talk about kind of folks being treated differently based on how they look you know, and, and assumptions on kind of where you're from. Obviously, discrimination, Black Lives Matter, a lot going on around the world related to that. I'm curious, sure. two things. One, how that's playing out in your part of the world. And then two, I'm also curious if, if you've experienced discrimination there based on the fact that you're American or the fact that you're a black man. Um, so I'll, I'll address the second piece first. I have never experienced discrimination for being an American or for being a black man in this part of the world ever. In in the time that I've been here, it has never happened ever. <laughs> so for, for me, I, I just, I just never had that experience. I can't say that, that it, it doesn't happen, but I'm just speaking from my own kind of personal interactions in the workplace, you know, in social settings, public settings, never. Right. I mean, I feel like I've been, you know, welcomed with open arms, you know, from, from everybody with whom I interact. Now, when you look at it from the perspective of, you know, Black Lives Matter protests that are going on, you know, around the world, this is also a place where you just can't do that. Right. Mm. You know, protesting is not really a thing that, that you're allowed to do spontaneously or organized wise. Right that just takes on a different meaning for what people are used to in this region. So, you know, if you, you look at the, the types of things that are, you know, are going on in, in Lebanon right now, there's a lot of civil unrest and protests on the street. I don't think that would ever be allowed to happen where I live. Right. So there's a, there's a consciousness as, as an American of, of seeing and understanding what's going on with black lives matter and kind of the, the tipping point that it, it feels as though we're, we're getting to where people on every side of, of the, the coin in the aisle or coming together and saying we have to do something. And, and I, I think that's amazing to see. And, and we're very conscious of it. There's not much um, also that's going on because of the varying levels of, you know, kind of COVID lockdowns and shutdowns, right? When you think about the, the lockdowns and shutdowns that are going on in the United States is that people are, there, there are, kind of penalties to some degree if you don't abide by certain curfews or lockdowns or regulations. But here, this is not a democracy, right? The, these are our, our, our monarchies where what they say goes. So when there's a 24-hour lockdown, you stay at home because there are, there are penalties associated. So you not only will get fined, thrown in jail, you will then get deported, right? So that means you lose your job. So there's, there's very little incentive for people to go against that grain because their livelihood is at stake if they go against it, right? I, as an American, can say, you know what, if, if I were to, you know, if they were to deport me out of the country, I said, okay, I just go back to America, right? I can find a job and continue my life and carry on, right? But some of these people have left their home countries because there is no opportunity or, or the, the opportunities are lacking, the, the compensation isn't the same. So those types of considerations come into play for people where they're like, I'm not risking anything, <laughs> right? I, I'm not going to, to take any chances that are going to take money out of my pocket and harm what I'm trying to do for my family, right? A lot of what people do is, is remittances, right? You know, it's not like a ton of money actually stays in, in these countries. A lot of people are sending money back home to build mm-hmm. houses, put their kids through school, take care of their parents. So it's just really a different dynamic here. So when you see a lot of the kind of uprisings and protests around the world, I'm, I'm heartening to see it, but you will be very hard pressed to see those types of demonstrations in this part of the world. But I also think COVID has something to do with that because, you know, right now you can't have gatherings of more than, you know, six people, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and if you are doing that, they will find you and put you in jail and kick you out of the country because they're trying to take this very seriously in, in terms of, you know, matters of public health. So, you know, those things, 
here you just can't have the same type of, of reaction. So for, for right now, it's, I'm very much so of a, of a spectator from the kind of activism part of it and just trying to do my part, whatever that may be from, from this side of the world that I can. One more thing I have to get into with you, and it's a completely different topic. You are what I would consider a master networker, right? A powerful network, probably both over there and here in the U.S. Probably pretty hard to maintain, though, given that you're on the other side of the world and on the other side of the time zone. So I'd love to get your thoughts on how you've managed to keep your network so strong, considering you've been out of the country for seven years on the other side of the world. It's a fair question. I mean, I, I think one of the key things that I, because I even had conversations with my mentors about that before I left. And they said, they're like, Ian, at minimum, what you should be doing is checking back in like every six months. Right. So I've tried to make it a point, at least even from a professional network perspective, to check in with, with people, right. And, and just say, Hey, how you doing? Here are the things that I'm doing. Just love to hear what's going on in your world when you have the opportunity, right? But you you have to be deliberate about it because if you're gone for so long, you're forgotten about, right? And and so you have to you know stay on the minds of the people who can can help you when when you need it, right? You know, from even just a, a personal standpoint, I, I just want to be able to keep a pulse of what's going on with my my friends back home. Right. I just want to be able to understand, you know, what they're seeing, what they're doing, how their careers are progressing, how their families are doing. And so those are, you know, fairly intermittent where you may only talk to somebody in passing at least maybe once a month, but you, you just have to be much more active. Right. You know, right now for me, the, the time is, uh, you know, a quarter to midnight, right. When, uh, when we're doing this. So to be able to maintain those connections, Sometimes you just have to do late night calls and, and even some of the like Zoom happy hours that my friends have been doing, of course, they start at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right? So I'm, you know, holding on till till 1 a.m. To, to start happy hour, right? <laughs> and, like and so, yeah, so <laughs> you, you just, you, you find a way and, and it takes, it does take a little bit of extra effort, right? But those connections to me are important and, and it's not even, doesn't necessarily have to anything to do with, a, a professional network, but I mean, these are people that I care about, right? So you do have to take the, um, you know, the extra step and go the extra mile to maintain those connections. And, and you know, my friends and, and, and colleagues also back home, they also reach out to me every once in a while, just, hey, how you doing? What's going on? And, and just to make sure that I also don't feel out of sight, out of mind, right? And that's something that, that's really appreciated from my side is, is it's not just a one-way street. You know, they're, they're also trying to check back with me and, and, and make sure that I'm okay. But it, it, it takes effort and you, you have to be deliberate about it. And even if you set something, you know, in your mind or in your calendars, like every six months from even from a professional perspective, I need to send emails to these people, <laughs> right? Just to kind of keep that, keep that going so that, you know, partially, you know, the other thing is when it's, when you deem it time to return, you need to be able to leverage those people to get you back. Right. And then to keep an eye out for you in terms of opportunities and all that. So, you know, I, I learned, I think very early on that the time to engage a network is not when you need something. Right. Because by then it's already too late. If, if somebody, if you're asking somebody out of the blue that you haven't talked to in two years, Oh yeah, I need you to do me this favor. They're like, well, wait a minute. I haven't talked to you in two years. Right. So they, they need to be aware and abreast of the types of things that you're doing. So they it can be in a better position to understand what it is you're doing, what you're looking for and how they can potentially help you in the next moves that you're trying to make. For sure. Yeah. Really, really valuable for folks to do that, whether they're across the world or not. Um, it's something I try to work on as well that sometimes I'm better at than other times. You know what I mean? But so just a couple more, go ahead. I I was, I was going to say, I was like, nobody ever does it a hundred percent all the time. I mean, I, I lapsed myself and I was like, no, wait, I have to get back on it. And and so, you know, I mean, life gets in the way, right? I mean, you're married, you have kids, you've got a job, you've got things going on that that sometimes make it hard. And that's why I I say you have to be deliberate and and continue to make, um, you know, make the effort. And it's never too late. Like if you're at the ninth month instead of the sixth month, they'll still appreciate that reach out. You know what I mean? You didn't like lose your one window that you had for the rest of your life to communicate with them. Precisely. So just a couple more questions I'd like to ask everybody who I have on the show. 
So the first one is around the power of conversations. And I always like to ask my guests if there's one conversation they can point to in their lives that had a really big impact on the direction that they ended up taking. I, I would say one of my mentors that I wasn't even a mentor at, at the time was my um, one of my mother's best friends. Her son worked at you know the company I actually ended up going to after my MBA. Now he came and and I think at this juncture he came to talk to my my older brother and I when we were teenagers. And I think at that juncture he had probably just finished his MBA, right? And was just kind of talking to us about you know how he was looking to move his career and forge ahead. I would have never expected that 13, 14 years later, he would be responsible for getting me hired at the company he was working for. Mm-hmm. Right. I never would have imagined that he and I would both be living in Dubai working for the same company. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he would still be someone and be someone that was very critical and, and pivotal in terms of my own career progression and trajectory. Right. And, and that's something that was so very kind of innocuous and it's like, okay, you know, my mom got, you know, her friend's son to come and talk to us about, you know, how he was kind of pursuing his, his career aspirations. And it's something that I heard and understood and was, was great to kind of get that feedback. But I was like, I'm 16. I don't even know if I was 16. Maybe I was like 14, 15 at the time. And I was like, I'm in high school. I just started, what do I really know about what I want to do? And he's become, you know, a, a just like I said, a very integral part of my my life, and I, and I think that type of connection that you start to build and that conversation you have, you never know how it's gonna how it's gonna lead, right? And I think that conversation for me was was just was so extraordinarily important to kind of springboard me on on building a connection that was something that that I would didn't know that I was going to need to rely on, you know, ten fifteen years down the line. It's always fascinating when you look back at kind of where you are and how you got there and how it all hinges on, you know, one meeting or one conversation or one event. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, and for me, I think the, the key is, is that, you know, the people oftentimes take those, the, the depth of conversation for granted, right? It's getting beyond the normal, what I call kind of platitude questions as expats, you know, we continually, the, the, the first three questions you're going to hear are, where are you from? How long have you been here? And what do you do? Right? My goal in conversations is always to kind of get a level deeper than that, right? Like, what's your favorite song? You know, what's your favorite vacation place? I, I try to get to pe- know people on, on a one or two levels deeper to really say, like, let's get past the normal kind of expat questions and let's actually get to know each other, right? Let, let's understand one another and, and kind of, even if where you're from, like, tell me more about where your, where your hometown is and what your experience was growing up, right? Those are the types of things that I help people build, that I think help people build more meaningful relationships and understanding of one another, you know, as they're, whether it's business, whether it's personal, you, and you build some deeper connections that way. Yeah, I love that, but it does take a little bit of courage to ask a bit of an out-of-the-box question, especially with somebody you just met. It is. I mean, I, I sometimes one of the benefits you can have of a conversation, and I, I distinctly remember having this conversation with, uh, I, I was at a, an engagement party in, in 2011, and I was sitting down with a young woman who was going to be, a, I was going to be a groomsman, she was going to be a bridesmaid, and I asked her, I said, you know, tell me something about yourself that you haven't already discussed with anybody else in the room. Right. So it was one of those where it actually then made her think of like, Oh, well, here's the things I've already discussed and kind of let me, you know, bring something new to the table that I I haven't already discussed. Right. So it actually gets the person you're talking to, to think a little bit deeper than, Oh, I went to school here. uh, You know, my favorite food is spaghetti, right? Like they have to think about something a little bit deeper about themselves. I love that question. I think I'm just noting that down. I think that's a tremendous, especially in a situation like that, where they've been having a bunch yeah. of the same conversation over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's like, a, you know, it's networking, right? Even if you go to a networking session and, and people are going to answer and, and, and have the kind of same canned responses all the time, you really want to get to deeper level of, of what it is that, that, um, you know, that the people, what motivates them. Right. And that's, that's always what kind of what networking is, is about is there's some, um, 
you know, kind of mutual exchange going on, right? And, and so you want to be able to kind of build a little bit more of a, of a personable and, and, and memorable experience for that person. Tremendous, tremendous. Okay, so second question, as you think about kind of all you've accomplished, all the places you've been, if there was one communication skill you could have had in more abundance that would have helped it all be a lot easier, what would that have been? Proficiency in another language. Uh, especially for you, um, it's critical. It's, it, it's not as critical as you would think. Being in Dubai, this is a place where you do not have to know Arabic. Mm-hmm. Because people are coming from so many different places, English really is the standard, right? But I have, you know, I speak a little bit of French. I'm, I'm good enough to be conversational, but I know I'm not fluent. I would love to know Arabic. And, and one of the things I noticed is so while I've been here, I've switched companies. So my last company, you know, the leadership teams that I was working with were very kind of geographically diverse. Now I'm working with majority Egyptians. So oftentimes in meetings, they just go off speaking in Arabic. And, you know, I'm one of two people within our leadership team that does not speak Arabic. Right. So oftentimes they have to catch themselves of, oh, sorry, Ian, we're, you know, we kind of went off in our, you know, in our own direction. I'm like, it's fine. I get it. Like your native tongue is Arabic. Like I, you know, I get it. Like when I'm trying to speak French and I get hung up, I go back to English. Right. So it's understandable. But I, I do wish that I was fluent in another language, not necessarily just conversation, but fluent in another language, because then it also helps you adapt to another language if you end up somewhere where you have to pick it up. I always take with me from my semester seed time, they would give us a green sheet with common phrases that we would need in, in case, right? Like, where's the bank? I need to talk to the police. How much did this cost, right? So anywhere I travel now, like I prepare like a mental green sheet of what are some of the key phrases of any country it is that I go to, whether it's on um, business travel or personal, that's going to help break the ice, right? And, and I think people are that much more appreciative when you come with, you know, standard things of even saying thank you or, you know, hello, how is your day? Like it, it's these types of things that I think go a long way to, to, to kind of helping people more apt to help you right? Is because you've at least taken that little bit to, to disarm them because they're not necessarily, you know, I mean, they can spot Americans a mile away. It doesn't matter what you look like. They, they know what Americans look at, you know, look like even before you open your mouth. So when you hit them with a little bit of something in their, in their native tongue, it shows that you're making a little bit of an effort and they're more willing to, to be, you know, to, to help you and engage with you a little bit more. That's great. I love that as a tool. Um, if anybody's doing traveling, I definitely recommend taking that on. Just one sheet, right? To prep with common phrases that, that might help you go a long way at just building those relationships with folks, even though you can't be fluent with it. it it's going to go a long way. Um, like it's like I, and traveling to kind of a few different places, I would have loved to have had something like that. Sure. And if, if I could, even if you allow me just to take it one, one step further. Absolutely. Um, I've, one of the things that I've, I've taken to, to heart and to note is to be able to greet everyone that I work with in their home language, Mm -hmm. right? So if you are working with Filipinos or if you're working with Egyptians or if you're working with Turkish people, right? I know how to say hello or good morning and goodbye or good night in all of those languages, right? because it just, I think it just makes people feel a little bit better that you took time to even learn like two phrases. Right. I mean, and it, it often, some, it, it surprises them. So, you know, my boss right now is, is Turkish, you know, and I'll come in and I'll say, you know, good which is, you know, kind of good morning, you know, or I'll say, which is good evening. And right. And they're like, wait a minute, what, like, how did you learn that? You know? So Google translate, can help you to get to the basics and also give you the pronunciations, right? So those are small things that you can do to just kind of build, especially as an American, you know, the, the, the joke is, is, you know, it's like, you know, what do you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks three languages? Multilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? American. 
Uh, right. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you want to be able to disarm them and show them that you have the capacity, particularly when you're outside of your own home country, that you're willing to engage them on another level. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. So last question for you, who is the best communicator that you know, either know personally or know of, and why do you say that about them? Good question. I, I would say I really, I learned a lot of communication from my brothers, mm-hmm. uh, my brothers and, and my parents. I think it's just the way they communicated with me as well as how I saw them communicate in any situation, right? Whether it was, it was professional, social, you know, just the, the way that they were very, you know, kind of explicit in, in terms of how they, how they wrote and, and how they, and how they spoke to me is something that I always tried to, to emulate. And I, I think that's something I, I take very much in, in terms of anything that I write or say, you know, oftentimes, I mean, I, you know, would run that by family members, right? I mean, you know, growing up and writing pa- English papers and all that when I was growing up, you know, my mom was like my primary editor, right? So, you know, the kind of art of, of language and the use of it and, and how to be clear you know, from, from diction, tone, punctuation, style, flow, like I, I got from, from my family members. And that's something that, uh, you know, I, I think they instilled in me to, to be, um, you know, at least to try to be a, an effective communicator as much as I could. Very cool. Very cool. So is there any place people can find you online or are you up to anything that you'd like to share with folks? Um, right now, honestly, I, I've gotten to do, uh, starting to do more kind of personal writing for myself. So I, I've started doing some self-publishing on, on medium.com. So the things that allow you to kind of publish your, your own thoughts so you can find me there. Just you know, pu- I'm, just your name on medium. Yeah, they can look me up on medium. Um, I'm starting to, to put some stuff out there, but, uh, in general, I, I don't have too much of the, the kind of full on social media presence other than just what I do via, via Facebook and, and LinkedIn. But, uh, but medium is probably going to be the medium for me to, to get more of my, uh, my, my thoughts and, and uh, communications out there. So as they say, you know, kind of watch that space to see what's coming next. Um, you know, I've, I've got a cadre of things that I've been working on, you know, in part over the last month that I've really been putting some, some pen to paper or finger to keyboard as it were these days, you know, to be able to, to deliver some messages to folks. Very cool. Very cool. I'd have to check that out. But overall, I thought this was a fascinating conversation. I definitely appreciate your time and I appreciate you coming on the show. I think the audience has taken away a ton of value around how to interact more effectively if they're going international and just some deeper thinking, I think, around how to interact with other cultures. So thank you for that. Sure. No, thanks for, for uh, inviting me to join. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, look forward to hearing more from the podcast. Sure thing. Don't let the momentum stop now. Continue your path towards connecting at another level by joining the Communication Nation. We'll be discussing today's topics as well as more real-world solutions to transforming your life personally and professionally at facebook.com slash groups slash join the communication nation. Remember, you're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and life. And that conversation starts right here on The Art of Communication.